0: So as I just read, we will be finishing up the last little bit in Romans, or excuse me, in Acts. My Bible's open to Romans, so that's what I was looking at. Uh, Romans will be for another series. Uh, We'll finish Acts today. This past week in our community group, we were talking about cliffhangers. And uh, the best cliffhangers are actually the worst emotionally. The very best stories are the ones that, that draw you in. They take you on the mountaintops of happiness and laughter. They bring you down to the valley of sorrow and tears. And they hit everything in between. And then they leave one last mark on you. The cliffhanger is the, is the final emotional dagger that leaves you gripped, wanting more. And yet the cliffhanger does not give you the clear resolution to the story that you want. It leaves you in this emotional place that you're not sure what to do with. You don't have the resolution. Some of the more famous or more gripping cliffhangers in recent years are Marvel's Infinity Wars. The movie ends with some of the main stars that we had grown to know and love and see triumph over impossible odds, and yet that movie was different. That movie ended with the bad guys losing, walking out of the theaters wondering what happened. Of course, Marvel came back and answered the story, and we had our resolution. Another famous cliffhanger is the movie Inception. The movie's main star, Dominic Cobbs, had a a totem. Movies about dreams and The way you know that you're in a dream is you have this totem. If the totem is spinning, then you're in the dream. If you're in reality, the totem will fall over. Gravity will have its effect. And so the movie takes you on twists and turns and then ends with the final shot of Dominic Cobb's totem. And you're wondering, is he in a dream or is he in reality? The last scene, it it wobbles a little bit, but... Ultimately, it ends. You're not sure. Is he in a dream or is he in reality? What's going on? Well, for some of us, Luke's ending to Acts may feel like a cliffhanger. Luke has spent the past 16 chapters looking at the life of Paul. That's over half of the book of Acts has been primarily about the apostle Paul and his missionary journeys. And and Luke has spent six chapters alone looking at Paul's trial in Jerusalem. And we saw last week, he devoted an entire chapter to looking at the sea voyage from Caesarea to Malta. For a historian like Luke, who has so meticulously preserved the details, for him to end his story and not tell us what happened to Paul, feels a bit like a bit of a cliffhanger on Luke's part. And yet... Luke is doing more than we might realize at first. Rather than leaving his story unresolved, he actually, I want to argue, is tying it to a perfect, complete close. The focus of Acts has never been about people. It's never been about Peter, though he was important. It's never been about Stephen, though he was important. It's never been about Paul, though he is important. It's been about God. And it's been about the Word of God as it has gone from Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria into the ends of the earth. So Luke ends his book by focusing us on God's Word. And so Luke wants us to see that with Paul in prison, with Paul in chains, the Word of God has not failed and His purposes have not been hindered. Indeed, God's word cannot fail and it cannot be hindered. And because the word of God cannot fail his people and cannot be hindered by the world, God's people are to be marked by the glory of God and his grace. And so first this morning, I want to look at the word of God will not fail his people. You'll see specifically Luke gives us three examples of this in our passage. The first is with the Apostle Paul himself. The second is with the Jews that Paul speaks with in Rome. And the third is with the Gentiles that Paul looks uh, at at the end of the chapter. So first, let's look at how God's word did not fail the Apostle Paul. We see in verses 11 through 22 that God delivers on his promise that he made way back in chapter 23 to ensure Paul would arrive in Rome. And so after three months at Malta, they, found, they find another ship from Alexandria. Again, that was probably a grain ship. And so even though it's still winter, the water's still dangerous, they're pressing to get to Rome. And so Paul and Luke, they get aboard this ship. And Luke wants us to know that the ship that they board has the twin gods as figureheads. Kind of out front were these two pagan gods. Castor and Pollux were their names. Their constellation was known as Gemini. Gemini means good fortune. And of course, those on the ship would have attributed their safe passage to Gemini, to their pagan gods. But Luke, of course, wants us to see that it's not because of fortune that they have such an easy journey from Malta to Rome. It's because of God's providence, guiding them safely to Rome. And then we see, beginning in verse 17, that after Paul makes it to Rome, and he's given a pretty lenient quarters in Rome, he's able to be by himself. He just has a Roman soldier with him. And then in verse 17, Paul gathers the leaders of the Jews together. Again, this is the fulfillment of God's word to Paul back in chapter 23. When God told Paul, You will testify about me in Rome. And beginning in verse 17, Paul begins that testimony to the Lord, to the Jews. And so Paul begins and says, That brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. Now, the trial had lasted over two and a half years, and so what Paul gives here is most uh, definitely a simplification of all of the things that took place, and it's coming from Paul's perspective. And so his point to the Jews is that he's an innocent prisoner. He's an innocent prisoner, but the real reason why he's here is for the hope of Israel. That's what he says at the end of verse 20. Because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing these chains or this chain. Again, we have seen that this is how Paul leads into proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah because of his death and his resurrection. The hope of Israel was the Old Testament hope that God would one day send someone to crush the head of the serpent And then that someone would be from the line of David. He would sit on David's throne. He would not see corruption. His body would not see the decay of the grave. And he would reign forever bringing peace to God's people. So Paul tells the Jews that it's because of that hope that that you have in the Old Testament that I'm here in prison. And so we see that God's word did not fail Paul, but in fact, God delivered on his promise to bring him to Rome to give him an opportunity to testify. And then we see that God's word did not fail the Jews. And this is where Luke spends most of his attention here, kind of at the end of the book of Acts. He doesn't spend his attention focusing on the church that's already established in Rome. Luke wants us to see Paul's interactions with the Jews. Because again, if you're living in the first century, you're reading the Old Testament, you're seeing the promises that God made to Israel, and then you're seeing how the church is growing, but it's growing primarily through Gentiles. You're left asking the question, did God's word fail Israel? Did God's word fail the Jews? And and so because of that failure, that's why the Gentiles are coming in. And Luke wants to spend his final moments in Acts giving some insight and explanation to the relationship between Jews and Gentiles. And so after Paul describes the, the reason why he's here, he recalls his trial narrative. They say, well, we want to hear more of your opinion." more of your views about this sect, this thing called Christianity or this thing called the way. Because every time that we hear about it, it's only spoken negatively against. So they seem to be a little unfamiliar with the message of the gospel. And so they arrange a day for Paul to explain the truth of the gospel to them. And so they arrange a day and from morning till evening... Paul is seeking to persuade these Jews in Jerusalem that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the hope of Israel. And the end of verse 23, Luke tells us that Paul did that by focusing specifically on the law of Moses and from the prophets. So Paul's using the Old Testament primarily to reason with them, to persuade them of what God had promised, God had delivered on that promise. The one that was promised to crush the head of the serpent, Paul is going to say, is Jesus Christ. He crushed the head of the serpent. So he's reasoning with them. He's pleading with them. And the result is the result that we've seen time and time again throughout Acts. Verse 24. Some were convinced by what he said but others disbelieved. Some of the Jews were convinced and they believed that Jesus was in fact the Christ, the Messiah, the one that God had promised and delivered. And some of them rejected that message. And then Paul gives a fairly lengthy quotation from the book of Isaiah chapter 6. Our call to worship this morning was from Isaiah chapter 6. And we looked at that initial scene, the throne room scene there where uh, God is is revealed to be on his throne with the seraphim shouting, Holy, holy, holy. And prophet Isaiah sees that and he says, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. The angel takes uh, from the altar and touches his lips. And then the Lord says, who will go on my behalf? And Isaiah says, here I am, Lord, send me, I'll I'll go. I've, I've seen your glory and I'll declare it to everybody. And this is what God told Isaiah. This is his initial charge, his initial marching orders as a prophet. God says, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. And with their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. That's the message that God gave Isaiah to give The Jews, and Paul says that the Holy Spirit was right for that message. He was right to deliver that message to the Jews then, and that message is still true for the Jews that Paul's speaking to today. A point that Paul is making in quoting this passage is to remind them of the judgment of God that stands on them for rejecting the message that he's bringing. The message that Paul's bringing is not Paul's message, it's God's message. And so, as they're rejecting Paul's message, they are rejecting God Himself. And the point is that the gospel message is so simple it's so simple that a child can hear it and understand it and believe in it and be saved by Jesus. It's not a complicated message. And not only is it not a complicated message, they should be able to see it with their eyes. They should be able to see the miracles that had been done. Supremely the miracle of the resurrection, of Jesus being raised from the dead, and then appearing to many people, many witnesses, eating and drinking. So not only should they be able to hear it with their ears, but they should see it with their eyes. And yet Paul says that their hearts have become dull. And so therefore they see, but they don't really see. And they hear, but they don't really hear. And Paul stresses that it is their willful rejection of the gospel that God's judgment is upon them. Though they be Jews... They have rejected God and his message to which the prophets spoke of. It is worth clarifying that the Jewish rejection of the gospel does not mean that God's word has failed. I don't think that's the picture that Luke wants us to see. This is not a final judgment, this is a judgment for their rejecting the gospel. Luke's given us hints in this passage that this is not an ultimate judgment. This is not a universal judgment against all Jews everywhere. But it is a judgment against those Jews who reject the gospel message. In verse 24, we've already seen that there were some Jews who listened to what Paul had said about Jesus and they believed. And God fulfilled his promise at the end of verse 27 and I would heal them. When they believed Paul's message, when they repented and placed their faith in Christ, God was faithful to His Word. He healed them. Paul himself bears testimony to that. And again, we see in verse 28 that, excuse me, in verse 30, that Paul spent two years living in Rome at his own expense under house arrest. And he welcomed all who came to him. That's significant. Paul didn't pronounce this judgment of God upon the Jews and then say, and I'll never talk to you again about the gospel. But as he stayed in Rome, he welcomed all who came to him. If that was a Jew, then Paul welcomed them and spoke with him about the gospel. So the judgment here is not an ultimate or final judgment, but it is a General judgment that generally the Jewish people will not hear the gospel message and humble themselves in repentance. Again, Luke is letting us in on the fact that this is also part of God's mystery. This is part of God's purpose in bringing salvation to the nations. That as the Jews have rejected the gospel message in Jesus. So then the gospel goes to the Gentiles. Luke's presenting for us in narrative form what Paul does in Romans chapters 9 through 11. And so Paul, yeah, Paul ends his uh, conversation with the Jews in verse 28 by saying, therefore, as a result of, Your dull heart, your hard heart rejecting the message. Therefore, this salvation, this promise that God would heal and restore, this salvation has been sent to the Gentiles. Again, notice that's in the past tense. Paul's reminding them of what God has already been doing. Because they've rejected it, it has already gone to the Gentiles. And then he says, they will listen in the future. The contrast there between the past tense and the future tense. It has gone out and they will listen. And so again, Luke is cueing us into God's plan for how he will fulfill his word to save a people for himself. That the gospel message will go out to the Gentiles... And they will listen. And that happens because the Jews have rejected the gospel message. And Paul ends, or Paul in Romans 11, I think is helpful. Let me read Romans 11, verse 11. So I, Paul, ask, did they, the Jews, stumble in order that they might fall? And Paul says, by no means. Rather, through their trespass, Salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Again, that's part of what Paul's doing in his final speech to the Jews here. He's giving them this warning, this judgment, in hopes that that would wake them from their slumber to realize they needed to repent. They needed salvation just like the Gentiles needed salvation. Again, the picture that Luke is giving us is that God's word has not failed And therefore, we're going to plan B here. But God's word is true, and God is faithful to his word and to his people. And so we are to see the trustworthiness of the word of God is dependent on God himself. In the U.S., we call our money dollar bills. It would be more precise, however, to call them Federal Reserve notes. So it's on the top of your money. And for the majority of American history, there was actually an amount of gold that was held by the U.S. government to match the Federal Reserve note. And that gold was measured in dollars. And so because there was a correspondence there between the actual gold and the actual bills that were printed, the bills became known as dollar bills because they stood in place of the actual gold. Well, in 1971, that changed. And since then, our money is no longer backed by gold. Instead, it's backed by the sole word of the United States government. And so every time you spend cash, you give someone cash, or you swipe your card, you are placing, I would argue, a high amount of trust in the sole word of the United States government to say, I'm backing that bill. Or when, when you receive cash, you do so trusting that the United States government's word will hold true. They will back that transaction and you actually have made money in that process. The trustworthiness of the Federal Reserve note is entirely dependent on the word of the United States government. And what Luke is wanting us to see, the trustworthiness of the word of God is dependent on God himself. God cannot fail, therefore his word cannot fail. And we see that in the life of Paul. We see that here with the Jews and we see that with the Gentiles. That salvation has gone out to them and they will listen. And so as we value and trust God's word and depend entirely on himself, we do so because we know that his word will not fail. It cannot fail. The word that he spoke to Adam to send one to crush the head of the serpent has not failed. Jesus did that on the cross. The word that God spoke to Abraham that the nations would be blessed through him has not failed. God has brought salvation to the nations, including the Jews, through Jesus Christ in the gospel. And again, Luke is giving us this picture so that we might marvel at the majesty and wisdom of God. That's why Paul ends Romans 11, that complex section from 9 through 11. He ends with this beautiful praise of God. He says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Friends, Christians are those people who have been captivated by the glory of God. have been captivated by the glory of God in salvation. And we see that glory here this morning as a church. Every time you hear of God saving another person, or you hear of how God is changing and transforming your brother or sister here in this church, you are giving, You're being confronted with proof from God that he's faithful to his word. He's still building his church in 2022. He's still transforming his people into the image of his son, which he promised he would do. So I would encourage you, if you you haven't, man, ask the folks in your community group. How did God save you? What's he doing in your life right now? Get to know one another's story and how God's grace has intersected and marvel at the glory of God who is still fulfilling his word. God has been faithful to His people. You see that in God bringing Paul to Rome, to the Jews who believe the gospel, and to the judgment of those who do not, and to the Gentiles who now have access to the gospel. We see God's word to bring salvation to the ends of the earth has not failed, and we see that it has not failed because God's word cannot be hindered. So that's the second point this morning. The word of God will not be hindered by the world. The final two verses, Luke writes, He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. There's good reason, I think, to believe that Paul lived after these two years that Paul was released and continued on in his ministry until he later died at the hands of Nero. The Jews in verse 21 indicate that they have no knowledge of Paul's trial. They have uh, not heard of any Jew coming from Jerusalem about the trial. And so at this point, there's no evidence that any of Paul's accusers actually made the journey to Rome to testify against him. So I think that It is likely that after two years, the accusers never showed and Paul was released in some form or some fashion. We don't know that exactly, but based on the information that we have, based on the testimony of church history, I do think that Paul lived beyond the end of the book of Acts. But again, Luke's focus is not on what happened to Paul after these two years, but what did he do in these two years. Luke's focus here at the very end is that the word of God is unhindered. In verse 30, he lived there for two years. Uh, most folks believe these, this is the period when Paul wrote four of his so-called prison epistles or prison letters. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Those are marvelous letters that describe the beauty of God's grace seen in the life of the church and in the Christian life. Paul's not sitting idly here. He is pinning God's word that was then going out to those places still that we read today profit from today. And Paul did this with all boldness and without hindrance. Again, It may be to some unsatisfying how Luke ends his book. To chronicle Paul's ministry so closely and yet leave us wondering. But again, Luke's goal, Luke's purpose is to talk to us about the word of God. Not so much Paul. Paul is a mere messenger of the word of God. The word of God is the focus And that has been true from the beginning of Acts and that has been true throughout every stage of the journey and it remains true today. The focus is not on individual Christians. The focus is on God's word, the beauty of the gospel being proclaimed and transforming lives so that as God's people, whether they live free and prosperous lives or whether they be imprisoned and enchained and actually die because of their faith, God's word will not be hindered because God's word does not hinge on individual people. God's word hinges on himself. And that will not be hindered. God's purposes will not be hindered. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, verse 9, For which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the Word of God is not bound. Bound with chains as a criminal, says Paul, but the Word of God is not bound. The Word of God continues without hindrance. Whether it's the hypocrisy of Ananias and Sapphira, the corrupt Jewish officials who ordered Peter and the apostles not to preach, or the stoning of Stephen the word of God continued to increase and the church multiply. Whether it was the idolatrous kings like Herod in chapter 12, killing James and imprisoning Peter, or whether it was the corrupt city officials who imprisoned Paul and Silas in Philippi, or whether it was the depraved philosophical pursuits in Athens, or the riot in Ephesus, or the fake trial and charges of Paul. No matter the circumstance, the word of God Continued without hindrance. That was true in the book of Acts and it's true today. The tighter that the world seeks to stamp out Christians, the brighter the light of the gospel shines. The hotter the flame burns. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And so because the word of God cannot fail, the people of God are marked by His glory. Because the Word of God is not bound, Christians are marked by the grace of God. We who have been transformed by the gospel know that humiliation precedes exaltation. Suffering before singing, the cross before the crown. But we know that God's Word will not fail and it will not be bound. And so Christians are devoted to the gospel of grace. We know that the gospel is the ground of our fellowship with one another. It's the ground of our fellowship with God. And it's the ground of our growth as Christians. In Acts 15 verse 11 at the Jerusalem Council. They declare in verse 11, But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will that the Jews will be saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they, the Gentiles, will. The gospel is the ground of Christian unity. And the gospel is the means by which God's people are made to look more like Jesus. Acts 20, 32. And now I, Paul, commend to you, commend you to God in the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. The gospel isn't the thing that gets us into the doors of the kingdom and then we move on to something bigger and better and more exciting. The gospel is what brings us to God and it's what grows us in our maturity as Christians. And so despite what we see around us, Christians are those people who are devoted to the gospel of grace. And we're devoted to living generously as a demonstration that God has been generous to us. Christians are those people who do not hoard their money, but who eagerly and joyfully give to be a blessing to others because we know that our money is even ours. It belongs to God. And so we give as a demonstration of what God has done. We see this, we've seen this throughout the book of Acts. Acts 4:34 through 35. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. The gospel frees us to live generously. And finally, we are devoted to prayer. The book of Acts begins with these words in verse 14. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. And time and time and time and time again throughout the book of Acts, we have seen the church, Christians are those people marked by prayer, knowing that God's word cannot be bound And so we regularly, with joy and faithfulness, we commit the things that we're walking through to the Lord in prayer. Because we know that the Lord is the only one that has the power to answer our prayers. And so Luke ends Acts by declaring to you and to me that God's word will not fail His people, nor will it be hindered by the world. And we must be reminded of these truths. Otherwise, we would forget them in despair. It would appear to our eyes that the darkness is winning, that the darkness is hindering God's word. And so we need to be reminded from God's word that that is not the case. God wants your feet to be firmly anchored on solid ground so that when the road gets tough and we have seen even this past week, it's getting tougher here in America. That even if Christians are imprisoned or chained, God's word is not. Beyond what you and I can see, God is fulfilling His word. It will not fail. And finally, the way Luke ends Acts is an invitation to you and me to join in the story to not be passive observers, but to be joyful participants in what God has been doing for a long time. Saving a people for His namesake to the ends of the earth. As, again, as we've seen in Acts, there are two kinds of people, those who reject the Word of God and those who praise the Word of God. Luke's invitation to you, to me, is to be those who praise the Word of God, not those who reject the Word of God. May God give us the grace to behold His glory and display His grace. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the book of Acts. Father, Your Word tells us that You have plans for Your Word, that when it goes out, it's fulfilling Your purpose and Father, as we conclude this study in the book of Acts, Father, may you be pleased to fulfill your purpose for us through this study. Father, we ask that you would fill us with an unwavering love for your glory. That in everything that we do, we might seek to display your grace to those around us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.